Hello, and welcome to Turing's Triple Helix, the podcast channel for the Scottish AI Alliance. We're all about shining a light on interesting things happening in AI in Scotland and beyond. I'm Steph Wright, the head of the Scottish AI Alliance, and I'm joined today by two fantastic guests to talk about AI and behavioral and data science. First up, we have Aditi Vaidya, who approached us with the idea of this podcast and introduced us to uh, Dr. Ghana Pogremna. So Aditi is a data and analytics professional who's passionate about understanding how behavioral science insights can be best applied to data and analytics teams and organizations. Ghana is the executive director of the AI and Cyber Futures Institute at Charles Sturt University in Australia. She's joining us from very early morning in Sydney, so thank you. Uh, she also hosts a research professional a professorship position in behavioral business analytics and data science at the University of Sydney Business School. And she's also a lead of behavioral data science strand at our friends, the Alan Turing Institute. So welcome to you both. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Steph. It's good to be here. Hi, everyone. Fantastic. Hello, Thank you for having us. That's brilliant. Excellent. So let's start off with a bit about you two. So I'm going to kick off with the DT. So, um, so let's start with you. So tell us a bit about you and your interest in this field and Ghana's work. So I'm, as you introduced me, I am a data analytics professional. Uh, uh, just to give you a bit of background about what I used to do prior to this, uh, wasn't very different from what data analysts do, but I used to work in the insurance industry uh, as an actuarial analyst. And uh, a lot of my job involved risk calculations within uh, the insurance industry. And as much as I loved like working with data, I was always more inclined towards what policyholders think about when they make insurance related decisions. And that was always sort of my inclination. It was more towards the human side of things. Uh, so that led me to sort of explore what I could do uh, with sort of my interest and my passion for understanding human decision-making and data as well. And that's what led me to uh, pursue a master's in behavioral and data science at the University of Warwick, where I uh, discovered uh, Gana's work and how she's sort of one of the very few pioneers in this field and all the great things she's she's done as well. Uh, and yeah, that's me. So for our listeners, what's your link with Scotland, Aditi? Oh, uh, sorry, I should have added that. I recently moved to Scotland uh, for uh, a job and I'm currently working with uh, NatWest, so our RBS or NatWest. Uh, as a graduate data analyst. And that's when I also uh, was introduced to Steph and uh, Women in AI Scotland and the Scottish AI Alliance. So, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. We, we love it when people come with us with ideas of podcasts because we're always looking for new things to talk about, new things to discover. So, uh, so Gada, lovely to meet you and thank you so much for being here today. Um, can you tell us a bit about your journey? why behavioral and data science um, and being one of the few pioneers contributing and creating this new discipline, how would you define it and your work in particular? Oh, uh, that's, that's quite a few questions. <laughs> so I'm just going to start from the beginning. Um, so I worked, uh, I mean, I, you know, originally had a economics degree um, and I worked at Columbia University as a postdoc. 
Um, and essentially, you know, so in economics, we have a branch called microeconomics. And then there is within that branch, we have kind of a really kind of sort of miserable group of people called decision theorists. Uh, and I was one of them. And um, why is it a miserable sort of group of people? It's because we're trying to predict human behavior. And um, naturally, when you're trying to predict human behavior using theory, theories usually don't work. Uh, so you kind of write a theory, you go to the lab, you test uh, your theory with people's decisions. So you get people into the lab, they do quite a few um, kind of tasks there. So decisions, they make decisions. Uh, normally your theory doesn't work and you write a new theory. So that's how it works. Um, and um, yeah, so so I've been, I was kind of quite happily doing that. That's very exciting, as you can imagine. Um, and uh, essentially, yeah, eventually I got a job in engineering department. And uh, the project that I worked on was um, essentially putting a lot of sensors into people's homes, measuring all sorts of behavior. And um, yeah, so kind of since that time, my, my research became more and more data scientist. And currently I do something on kind of uh, uh, in between economic psychology and computer science. And um, eventually I discovered that there are quite a few of us doing that. And uh, the field is called behavioral data science. So, so what is behavioral data science is an interdisciplinary field where we have a kind of a theoretical bit coming from behavioral science and we have a methodological bit coming from uh, data science. So just to, for those of you who have no idea how you have kind of interdisciplinary type of uh, fields, um, you can imagine kind of the difference between mathematics and engineering, right? Mathematics tells you, um, gives you a theory about how the world might work and engineering is a service field that applies mathematical laws to uh, practice and tells you how to, for example, build a bridge, right, using mathematical laws. So it's very similar. So we have um, behavioral theory that tells us how people behave, right, and then we have data science that allows us to apply these theories at scale, test them with, you know, human behavior. And um, this is kind of turned out to be very trendy because uh, currently we have quite a lot of data that we generate on a regular basis. So first I think it was called big data, but now it's uh, sort of turned into proper behavioral data science. That's in a nutshell. <laughs> a big nutshell. I mean, it, it's, that's amazing. And, um, you know, I, I have a note here that, you know, I guess maybe quite a lot of people associate the concept behavior as something that only applies to humans uh but in reality does that also you know apply to like algorithmic behavior systemic behavior in addition to human behavior yes absolutely so in behavioral data science we have uh, uh, researchers coming from kind of all walks of life pretty much and yes we have three strands uh human behavior algorithmic behavior and systems behavior so in human behavior, we essentially look at, uh, well, exactly, you know, like I said before, we can have behavioral theory from cognitive psychology or experimental economics, and we apply this theory to kind of, uh, you know, large uh, data sets. So we have, for example, data from Twitter, and we are testing theories using data from Twitter. Um, then we have algorithmic behavior. 
Um, and uh, usually, so if in the human strand, human behavior strand, we have mostly cognitive psychologists or people with economics background. So in, in algorithmic behavior, we have a lot of statisticians, mathematicians, and so there people do uh, really cool stuff. Like, for example, they invent uh, IQ tests for machines and they are, you know, sitting there all day kind of asking questions of chat GPT, you know, uh, and, and trying to figure out how smart the whole thing is and, and how we can evaluate it. Um, and then we have a third strand, which is systems behavior and systems behavior, mostly, I mean, mostly engineers end up in that field. Uh, and um, in that subfield, and essentially um, it looks at how humans and algorithms communicate and coexist in complex environments. So, for example, in a city um, context, how do you, you know, how do you have um, collaborations between people and machines? Well, you know, we, we mentioned uh, here financial services, so, you know, you could look at a bank, you know, how the bank functions and, you know, what uh, uh, collaborations and uh, cooperations and overlaps between humans and machines we have in financial services, for example. That's great. Thank you very much. And that leads nicely to, I think, Aditi is going to ask you some questions about systems behavior. Uh, thanks so much for giving a descriptive understanding of what behavioral data science is and all the three si uh, strands of behavioral data science. Uh, my question was uh, mostly around how recently there have been conversations around AI ethics and how uh, humans interact with systems and that being a very important part of systemic behavior. How would you say behavioral data scientists have a role in play, a role to play in shaping these uh, AI ethic ethics policies? Well, AI ethics lies at the core of what we do. I mean, obviously, in order to run any studies, we need to get ethics approvals. Uh, but generally, you know, when we're talking about uh, explainable models, um, when we're talking about various various problems that we have with uh, uh, data-driven modeling, um, behavioral science is very helpful. So, for example, one of the goals of uh, behavioral data science is to um, work on models that could could be explained to humans. So, for those of you guys who have no idea what I'm talking about, usually when we deploy uh, models, uh, com you know, computer science models, uh, especially what we call machine learning models based on uh, some sort of algorithms that are trained on data, uh, these algorithms tend to be black boxes, what, what we call uh, black boxes. Um, so the black box essentially is an algorithm that sort of fits the data well. So in other words, imagine that we have behavior of uh, um, people who are, um, I don't know, borrowing money from a bank, right? So we have hundreds and hundreds of, of uh, observations. So we train a model and we uh, trying to understand, basically to have an algorithm that tells us, okay, in under these conditions, we recommend a person to take a loan under these conditions, you know, we don't recommend uh, and so on. So, um, so usually these models kind of give us a prediction, but we don't know why. Right, so we can't explain why, and that's not very helpful in the business sense because we always want to understand what is the underlying variable that makes a difference or a set of variables. 
that make a difference so, such that we can actually influence behavior. Um, so this is important in many contexts. Um, for example, if we wanted, you know, people not to have chronic debt, you know, in my example, or if we, in other contexts, want people to recycle, well, it's not really a rational behavior to recycle, right? So do kind of pro-social thing rather than egoistic thing. Um, so, so in this context, we, we really need to, um, be able to explain what the machine is doing. Um, and, um, uh, behavioral science actually helps to, to do that. So we have models that allow us to, uh, completely trace kind of the reason <laughs> for why a machine is choosing certain outcomes, um, to sort of. Uh, and, and link it with the choice, right? So, so essentially, machines and humans, in a nutshell, again, machines and humans think in different ways. And the behavioral data science has uh, modeling approaches that uh, have behavioral science at its core. So we can actually explain why uh, machines are choosing certain outcomes and making certain predictions. So that's kind of one example. Um, but in terms of like collaborations between uh, ethicists and lawyers and behavioral, behavioral data scientists, I mean, I have quite a lot of collaborations with, um, um, people who work in law and in computer science, and we worked on some, you know, documents that informed the European regulations. For example, we've done uh, several things for the Council of Europe, uh, where we supported reports. So usually you just also need, uh, apart from explaining what machines do, you also need a person who would tell you what, um, you know, what humans do and how humans behave with technology. Well, a, a very typical example, um, that one of my friends told me a very long time ago. Um, so you, we all have, you know, smartphones and, uh, the original iPhones, iPhones, um, um, wiring, you know, for a uh, wireless uh, connection was basically put on the side of the phone, right? And uh, what was happening was that no, they didn't have a behavioral scientist who would, would be working with, with the team. And naturally when you are calling, you kind of take the phone in your hand and you, in, in the original sort of iPhone, you would lose connection, right? And this happened because no one thought about, you know, how this, you know, this thing would be used. So, and yeah, I mean, no, normally behavioral data scientists, they kind of can tell at scale how people are going to behave <laughs> with a certain piece of technology. And that's, that's also very important to understand if you are considering, um, sort of ethical implications of what you're doing. That's really interesting. Thank you so much, Janet. Um, yeah, especially like the people bit, of course. So, uh, and so, so I'm going to bring it a bit to, uh, what we're, what are we doing here in Scotland? So, um, Scotland's AI strategy places people at its center and we advocate for trustworthy, ethical, and inclusive AI. Uh, we would be great to hear your thoughts from both of you actually, uh, around, uh, what are your thoughts on this approach? Uh, so I'm going to kick off with Ghana and then over to DT. So Ghana, what do you think? I mean, you know, I'm obviously, <laughs> it's, it's, it's great, <laughs> but one thing I want to say is, you know, we don't have a good definition of what is trust. 
uh, when we talk about, uh, you know, human-machine cooperation. So we don't know what trust is. It's not very well defined. And um, we obviously, we all strive to, to create trustworthy and ethical systems. We just don't know uh, what trust is. And in different contexts, it can mean different things. Let me just uh, give you an example of, from behavioral data science, and you will understand what I mean. So uh, in behavioral data science, we have um, a paradox, so that's called privacy paradox. And the privacy paradox goes like this. So if I go out in the street and ask uh, 100 people, do they care about their privacy? Probably 99% of people will tell me, yes, I care very much about my privacy. But then uh, if I give them a phone app that will completely, you know, defy their privacy, so essentially breach all, all, all possible um, you know, all, all, all possible rules about privacy that these people can have. Uh, many of them, uh, but, you know, this app will be offering a service to them. Many people will actually download that app and use it, even though it tracks a lot of their, you know, their behavior. So we have this, this huge paradox, and um, there was even a really interesting experiment that was done by Riza Punio, who, she is actually not a scientist, she's a, an artist. So what she did, she actually cooked some, baked some cookies and went out in the middle of um, kind of one of New York fairs and uh, she was exchanging these cookies for personal data. So you couldn't buy them for money, you had to trade your personal data. And out of, I think, 380 people that stopped uh, near her sort of, you know, near her stall in, uh, in New York City, I think half uh, gave out um, four last digits of their social security numbers. <laughs> and uh, if you think that that's kind of a joke, uh, you cannot change your social security number. If you, if you, you know, if some, if it gets compromised, you can't just go to the government and say, oh, you know what, my number was stolen. So, so half of the people did that. So they exchanged their, you know, last four digits of social security number for a cookie, right? Um, and then uh, about a third of people gave her a fingerprint. So again, <laughs> very, very personal data. So, yeah, I mean, and, and again, this is where behavioral data science is um, valuable because you could look at this, you know, you could, you could look at these types of behaviors and you can understand, you know, how do you contextualize trust, you know, towards kind of algorithmic, um, to, to, towards algorithms, towards machines. And then how do you ensure that people uh, live in harmony with algorithms and uh, algorithms actually benefit people rather than hurt them? That's really interesting. That example of yours reminds me of, I think it was perhaps another artist, uh, I think in Scandinavia, who opened up a, um, a pop-up shop. I don't even remember this a few years ago where they had artifacts in it that people could buy, but there's no prices. And the public go in and uh, and when they say, how much is this T-shirt? They said, well, can I open your phone and look at your contacts and stuff? And they enter into this conversation about what personal data they were willing to give away for that. So it, I guess it was a more active discussion around what data you're able to, you're willing to give away than a cookie. Slightly alarmed that people were just having to give that stuff away 
for a cookie. It must have been an amazing cookie. <laughs> but uh, but I think it's really interesting that it's obviously creative creative practitioners that are you know having these really really provocative conversations around these concepts. So um... yeah, I just want to say that you know it's not like uh, people are naive. Like we know that people people do know that their data is worth something, right? <laughs> it's just that. We normally have no idea how much it is worth, and uh, mm-hmm. kind of in my lab we measure we measure that, um, and we do did ask people like how much do you think your different types of data is, and normally uh, people value the most valuable data to people in the UK uh, is uh, health data, so you know your health record would be the most uh, valuable, so people value on average value um, about one month's worth of health data at more than 500 pounds on average. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the data that, uh, for example, what what uh, what was striking about that study, as you know, a lot of uh, apps uh, track your geographical location. And, um, you know, people normally give away that data for free. So actually people were willing to, um, you know, thinking that it was worth about 30 pounds a month, that type of data. And they were also willing to pay 10 pounds a month to protect it, to kind of make sure that no one looked, ever looked at that data. So it's, you know, it's very, just very interesting patterns and but you know we also have to understand that for a company you know a single record is not it's not going to help like they need to know data from many people to make it valuable to them and yeah so um again this is where behavioral data science methods are good because you could actually look at behavior at scale right and see what happens with um, you know uh, large numbers of people that's great I'm going to come to Aditi for some thoughts because actually that whole conversation around the value of data and what people are willing to give up leads very nicely into the question you're leading on next. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. So firstly, when it comes to AI, ethical AI and just trustworthy systems, uh, the conversations and just uh, like the way people speak about it has now become so much more nuanced. Uh, it's it's never a straightforward answer and it keeps changing based on what context we're talking about, especially these days or in the in the past year or two, we've seen questions around accepting cookies and sort of how just us as as a consumer, not data professionals, just the common man making decisions on whether I want to accept these cookies or not these sort of processes have sort of now come into play. How do you think that the information or awareness gap is between providers of these services and consumers? Uh, Is there sort of an information and awareness gap, you would say? Uh, And if there is one, how do you think behavioral data scientists can help to sort of fill this gap? Um, again, I mean, it's a highly context dependent, so let's just pick a, a specific uh, sort of um, context and uh, look at it. Um, so, for example, uh, this year my team uh, looked at, well, kind of on the, at the end of 2022 and this year we looked at uh, ad tech crisis. So in education technology, we have a lot of um, trackers that are tracking, for example, kids, right? And a lot of schools use uh, technology. And we had a report by, I believe it was uh, Human Rights Watch, who discovered that there were quite a lot of 
you know, like I said, cookies, <laughs> the trackers that were tracking uh, ch children's behavior. Right? And um, we have, so parents, uh, uh, first of all, have very little idea of what technology kids are using at all uh, at school. Uh, what kind of platforms they're using and also you know what um you know cyber hygiene these products have so like in other words uh, um you know f they don't actually t teach their kids about uh, you know cookies or privacy and all that so they actually need um i think um, um so so to, to, to uh, is there a gap uh, yes of course there is the gap um, uh, how can we uh, overcome it? I think it's not uh, not just awareness and education, but it's also what happens at home. So, you know, for example, I have a six-year-old son and I always kind of explain to him the dangers of, you know, um, losing his privacy and he knows a lot about passwords and, you know, um, when he... When he when he interacts with technology, he's very careful. So I think it's, we just need to sort of uh, promote that cultural shift so that people are sort of more cautious. And also, you know, if we look at uh, this whole um, this whole f kind of field of privacy, um, it's also you know how the data sets are combined. Like for example. If I come to Steph and I say, Steph, can I have your data for research purposes? You know, and I will just look at your, I don't know, purchasing behavior. I'm just going to get your, um, you know, loyalty card from a local supermarket and look at your data. Um, I mean, in that case, Steph will probably say, yeah, why not? You know, like my data, I mean, I, I want to know what I'm purchasing because I want to get better offers, right? Um, but um, let's just say if I take Steph's uh data from a supermarket uh, a purchasing card uh, from the loyalty card and I combine it with like three or, or, or four other data sets you know about her location about her um, the, uh, you know demographic information like all these things then suddenly I know something about Steph that she doesn't want me to know right so like we for example had uh, projects where we could predict where someone uh, whether someone would get pregnant right and that's where the ethical questions kick in right um so obviously as researchers we would never use this type of insight but uh you can imagine that uh, you know in their own hands this type of information could be very valuable and uh, people could be bombarded with uh, some um, kind of advertisement for example that they don't want to see um, and, you know, behavioral data science certainly can help because we understand uh, people's biases and how they are, you know, they could be made aware of um, um, s some of the kind of informational asymmetries that we have in this domain. And uh, we can teach them better. Like, for example, again, taking the, you know, the example of kids, um, we do we do know how to design behavioral campaigns better, right? So we can, because with with the help of behavioral science, we can say that, okay, if we just scare people and tell them, oh, you shouldn't, you know, share your data, because you know you can lose your data and uh, it kind of be will be forever lost, or you can lose money or whatnot, uh, become a victim of cyber criminals, those types of things. So these things will only work temporarily, right? Um, it's one that they will never work long term. So therefore, you know, we need a different behavioral design, which is uh, 
talks about the positive outcomes uh, if people behave well. Um, and then we, we observe uh, maybe not a sudden change, but we observe gradual change, which is also long-term, right? And translates through several generations. So kind of these types of things are also quite useful with behavioral data science, where we can combine methods of behavioral design and, uh, um, you know, data science and apply uh, methods of behavioral design at scale. Yeah, it's slightly terrifying when we all think about it, right? Like, because you know, the the discussion around like behavioral science in general is just fascinating. You know, you hear about it all. You know how certain things are placed in supermarkets and stuff because you know they'll be noticed more due to how people behavior in supermarkets. All that kind of stuff is just fascinating, and and that discussion about you know data, what you're willing to give up, um, because you in the context of what we're talking about here. There is no AI without data, you know, and and so AI is built on a foundation of collecting all this data, access, accessing all this data. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's just really interesting. And that supermarket example, of course, it was a big controversy in the UK not that long ago where, um, was it in the UK? I can remember, UK, US, where a father found out that her his teenage daughter might be pregnant because of like loyalty card, you know, purchases and they were shown an advert or something like that. And it's just, yeah, no, just really interesting. I, I'm going to pass it back to Aditi for our next question. So, uh, in sort of when you're speaking about uh, ethics and everything to do with how, like, companies sort of make these decisions on whether this is too creepy or not too creepy, you also mentioned uh, behavioral methodologies and how companies kind of make these decisions would you say that there's there's a formal definition of these things out there already and is it being used in the industry is there sort of like uh, a toolkit that companies with behavioral data science teams use at the moment and for example if there's a company out there looking to start their own behavioral data science practice uh, what would be a good place for them to sort of start? How how should they start? Are there any skills, expertise, uh, type of people that would be included in this toolkit of, say, a behavioral data science practice in, say, a bank, for for example? Yeah. So, um, um I mean, uh, it's uh, I'm just gonna give you a sort of pretty standard answer uh, in terms of like what we do when kind of when my team goes and consults companies. So, so usually we, when, when we com, come in, in 99.9% of cases, so we see the following picture. So we have two departments in, in, in companies, and unless that's a very small SME and, you know, they just kind of want to do something niche and they already have behavioral data science capability. So we normally see sort of a behavioral science unit where people kind of do surveys and they're trying to understand why consumers behave in a certain way, what are the underlying reasons and what how personality traits are affecting their choices. And then we have a second department where data scientists sit. So it's kind of like um, in the British context, like IT crowd, right? So people in the basement who just sort of get a lot of um, hard, what we call hard data on um, um, on individuals, side, demographic characteristics, and they're trying to sort of um, understand how different segments 
are likely to engage with a certain products of the company. And what happens is uh, in, again, almost always happens is that uh, this behavioral unit and the data science unit, they don't talk to each other. So the first thing we do when we kind of arrive <laughs> is we, we put them in the same room and we're trying to find, um, you know, points for collaboration. So we're basically saying, well, you guys, if you're in behavioral science unit, work with soft data, you guys in um, uh, data science unit work with hard data. Right. And then we're trying to marry the two things. And how, how, how do we marry them is we, um, we're trying to uh, understand how hard data could predict unobservable behavioral traits such that, you know, they could then inform uh, our understanding of the customer and formulate, for example, segments, you know, run uh, behavioral segmentation. So in other words, if I'm um, risk-seeking or risk-averse, you know, how this could be predicted with some hard data. And um, we try to kind of pull uh, companies away from demographics uh, and tell them, okay, different people with different characteristics could exhibit exactly the same behavior, right, in, in kind of in financial context. Like, for example, you can have people who are um, making very rational decisions all the time. They rarely look at their bank accounts. That could be one group, right? And you can have different ages and mixes of uh, demographic characteristics in that group. And then you can have a different group that sort of collects coupons uh, that applies, um, you know, constantly kind of looks at bargains and things like this. And this group, again, will have different demographic characteristics uh, within the group. So just knowing that they are, you know, uh, low-income elderly or high-income, you know, middle-aged people is not going to help you, but uh, it kind of helps you to when you look at what decisions they're making. So, yeah, I mean, uh, those types of things, uh, I think, you know, in in, in terms of thinking about <laughs> how, you, how do you create a behavioral data science unit is actually to put people together in one room for doing data science and behavioral science. And then, um, you know, take it from there and see where, you know, the overlaps could be. Um, and yeah, I think this is how in, in the majority of cases we create capability. Um, you can also study, go study in quite a few universities now. I think University of Warwick that you mentioned, uh, University of Amsterdam, University of Western Australia, I believe, has a degree in uh, in uh, behavioral data science, but, um, you know, there are very few people, obviously, who have graduated with these degrees. Uh, there will be more of them, I'm sure, as we go along, but, um, you know, it's uh, kind of, it's a growing, uh, it, there's a growing popularity for these degrees. Uh, but, you know, to build capabilities, just you put people from these two um, sort of fields into the same project and tell them, okay, uh, tell us better, tell us, uh, we want to understand our customers better. So what can you tell us from a behavioral perspective and data science perspective? Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, to kind of close off this discussion, which to be honest, I could listen and talk <laughs> and talk about this all day, really. It's just a fascinating field. Um, I, I quite like to ask you about future projects. Um, what are you working on in the future? I think in particular, I'm quite interested to hear about your AI for regional and rural development project. Uh, as you may know, like Scotland 
obviously is very rural. I believe the statistic is something like 98% of the landmass of Scotland is rural, with 17% of the population resident there. So, you know, it'd be great to hear more because I, I've kind of obviously seen some articles about the project, about how rural com rural areas are missing out on AI opportunities. And I, I'd love to hear a bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, uh, so I currently lead an institute and um, we are very passionate about uh, rural development. And um, mainly the motivation comes from what kind of what we've talked about from the ethical and, in, in, you know, the perspective, perspective of ethics and inclusion, right? Um, so we know that, for example, that a lot of data that we use for training in, for example, smartphones come from the global south. So these are people who are mostly using Android phones and, you know, a lot of data collected from them. But when we talk about the actual technology that has been developed and, you know, as a developer, I'm also kind of guilty as charged because I, you know, worked in cities the majority of my life and developed algorithms for city contexts. So, yeah, so most algorithms are developed for an average urban, you know, city, citizens, citizens that live in, in urban areas. Um, and... Um, Rural areas are definitely missing out on, uh, you know, the technological advances. So what we're trying to do is essentially we are trying to understand how we can create uh, or use technology of the beaten track and in the wild and, uh, you know, um, how this technology can help, I don't know, farmers, people who live in rural areas. So we particularly are passionate about uh, for example, Australian uh, First Nations, uh, indigenous population who have uh, experienced uh, throughout the history of Australia, you know, suboptimal sub economic outcomes. And we're just trying to see how behavioral data science, for example, can help, you know, improve the outcomes for these communities. So, you know, you probably heard that there are Quite, there were quite a few uh, natural disasters in Australia recently, the bushfires and floods. Um, I know that there was um, uh, there were some flood problems in the UK as well. And, uh, um, you know, so we can basically with, for example, with behavioral data from Twitter uh, or uh, Flickr or, you know, Instagram, we can actually just, uh, we can analyze uh, photographs that people are posting there and make live predictions about flooding or bushfires. Um, and uh, we can give timely predictions to people who are living in rural areas about the potential dangers of a disaster. Um, and so this is just one example where, you know, algorithms that we are working on are, are very, very powerful and can save lives in, in uh, a certain contexts. So yeah, and um, it's a very, so like I said, we like as a group, we're very passionate about it. And we think that it will be, um, you know, very valuable directions in the direction in the future. And we even uh, almost, almost uh, uh, really uh, like all, in, in the next few weeks, we will be releasing the uh, um, uh, AI kind of re regional AI index. So kind of it's for rural and, and regional AI. Uh, and uh, trying to show actually where the algorithms uh, are being developed, you know, for rural and regional communities. 
So it's kind of like a global heat map. And, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting, you know, w w which countries are actually leading <laughs> leading there. And, you know, we generally I can tell you that we don't do enough in this area. And we would just like to give give more back to the rural and regional communities. Thank you. That's brilliant. Uh, just yeah. a, sorry, just a follow-up on, like, the uh, work that you're doing with rural communities. Uh, I was also really curious to find out about, because, well, I mean, different sort of rural communities around the world have uh, different cultural contexts. So when you push messaging out to communities, uh, how much of uh, cultural context is taken into account while pushing out this messaging and how much of that sort of goes into uh, the research that you do as well, because that's also sort of important when you make psychological models. They vary for different types of people based on where they are. So how much of that also is taken into account? Yeah, I mean uh, that's a um, that's a, well that's a, just an interesting aspect of the work. Um, again, I will go with specific example. I don't want to be too general here. Um, for example, well, let's just take First Nations uh, problems in Australia. And so the, the First Nations people have completely different perception of technology than um, kind of a colonial view, let's just say, and. Uh, the uh, uh, the main difference is that uh, when in in sort of in the normal Western culture we talk about the human-centered technology, uh, like putting a human. Uh, well, as you guys said, you know that's what kind of uh, you, you do as well, kind of putting human in the middle of the um, of the of, of understanding of technology. So that's not how. Uh, local communities, uh, you know, indigenous communities in Australia think about this. So they have, instead of human-centered technology, they have a concept called um, country-centered technology. So all technology is consumed as a kind of as a social good, right? So we have connections to local community, like connections to what they call the map. <clears throat> this is their <clears throat> uh, immediate uh, sort of circle. Um, and uh, um, they uh, uh, tend to uh, kind of consume technology, interact with technology from the point of country, right? From how how does the whole country uh, around them, nature, uh, you know, their uh, the family, their immediate circle um, interacts with technology. So theoretically, that's very different. <laughs> very different uh, situation from just uh, modeling a human in the middle of, uh, you know, technological process. And, um, you know, theoretically, it it kind of gives us completely different predictions. So essentially, we're no longer looking at, you know, one person interacting with a lot of factors of the technological development, you know, algorithmic development. But we are looking at, you know, how basically multiple factors that interact with each other as a complex system, you know, then interacts with, with algorithms. And uh, yeah, so that theoretical understanding also leads to a completely different empirical uh, um, understanding. So yeah, it, it does affect a lot and, uh, you know, the, the understanding of, of how to, not only how to engage and how to deploy behavioral data science technology, but also um, 
you know, yeah, as a, a kind of at the very core, the very theoretical concepts will be different and uh, uh, potentially solving the ethical problems that we've talked about uh, by design, because we, you know, we start from social concept. We start, start from a concept where you have to share, uh, for example, certain types of data with other people or, you know, entities. Um, and, uh, yeah, this is kind of really fascinating, um, uh, fascinating, fascinating area where we can make a lot of scientific discoveries. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, well, all that leaves me to say really is thank you so much for joining us both, especially Ghana. It's uh, very late where you are right now. Uh, so oh, it's early. No, no, it's early. <laughs> oh, it's very early. Oh, of course. Sorry. Yeah, it's very early. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so thank you so much uh, for, for joining us. Um, we, we obviously love to hear more about your project at some point. So um, so thank you. Um, we'll, we'll hopefully post some links to some of your work to accompany this podcast. And uh, just to say to our listeners, um, if you have a particular topic that you're really interested in and, and a speaker you'd love to hear from, please do get in touch uh but uh yeah all that leaves me to say is thank you so much again ghana and thank you so much dt for the idea and for introducing us to ghana and uh yeah no and we wish you all a lovely day thank you so much thank you thank you so much <laughs>